This is the Creative Agency Podcast, where we explore the strategies, aspirations, methods, and mistakes behind growing and maintaining a successful creative agency. Hello out there, and welcome to another mind-expanding episode of the Creative Agency Podcast. My name is Chris Bolton. I will be your host. I have Forbes contributor and agency veteran Will Burns on the show today. He founded a very uniquely positioned agency called Ideasickle. You can check out Ideasickle online at ideasickle.com. We're going to talk about Will's agency and an article he wrote for Forbes called The Advertising Agency of Record Model Isn't Dead, It's Just Being Reinvented. Be sure to visit creativeagencypodcast.com to get a link to that article along with some of Will's other Forbes articles. Now, before we start the show, drum roll, please. The Creative Agency Podcast has a sponsor. Now, it's been my goal, if we were to get a sponsor for the podcast, that it would be a service that I know, love, and use at my agency, Murmur Creative. So, after a certain amount of haranguing on my part, Gather Content has decided to become a sponsor for the show. Gather Content is a software tool that allows you to collect all the copy and images for a website in one place and collaborate with your clients and coworkers in a super easy-to-use interface. Um, It eliminates the pains of hunting through your email to find the right version of that document that the client sent you weeks ago. And it puts everything in one place and archives everything you do so you don't lose anything. You can easily add notes and comments, submit feedback, get notifications, and finalize and lock content so that when it's done, nobody can mess it up. Gather Content also allows you to export content directly into a CMS like WordPress or Drupal or Sitecore and many more. Anyway, it'll speed up your website process exponentially. At Murmur, we measure time in before Gather Content, BGC, and after Gather Content, AGC. Um, You can get a 30-day trial if you go to gathercontent.com forward slash cap. That's C-A-P. That stands for Creative Agency Podcast, as if you didn't know. All right, that's it. Let's get to the show. Hello out there. I am joined by Will Burns, Forbes contributor and founder of a unique agency called Ideasickle. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you, Chris. Where are you calling in from, by the way? I am in the North Shore of Boston, where it's raining cats and dogs right now, uh, in a little (laughs) town called Hamilton. Oh, nice. My, uh, My wife's from Boston. Oh, no kidding. So we're going to talk a bit about current and future agency models and an article you wrote about agencies of record. But first, I wanted to talk about your agency, Ideasickle, and your background. So you've actually worked with Widen & Kennedy, which is uh, based here in Portland. Um, what capacity did you work with them? I started out as an account supervisor there on the Microsoft account, oh, wow. which is a whole podcast in in itself to talk about <laughs> the, the marriage of Widen & Kennedy this creative hot shop and Microsoft. Um, but uh, so I started off as an account supervisor on that account mm-hmm. and I left about three years later as an account director on Miller Beer mm-hmm. and a couple of others. So w- what would you say is your, your area of expertise? I could answer that in two ways. I think the, my area of expertise is in branding, just in general. But I think my real passion is around creativity and the role that creativity can play in branding. And so I, I really study creativity. I like the science behind it. I like to figure out, you know, what's going on in the human mind when people are being creative and what are the things that we can do to increase creativity. And that's one of the things I've learned over the years is 
that uh, I, you know, when I was younger, I thought there were people that were either creative or they weren't creative. And what I've learned since then is that anyone can be creative and can be more creative than they currently are if, uh, if they just kind of understand the, the mechanics of it. So I've sort of made it a life mission to try to understand creativity and then apply that in the marketing space. Well, wow, that's really cool. Um, what, what made you decide to start your own agency? Well, I mean, when I was, I've always sort of fantasized about starting an agency, but it's not like the world needs another advertising agency. It, it really mm-hmm. doesn't. And so I put it, the added pressure, I talked to a couple of people about peeling off and starting an agency. And I would always ask the same question, you know, how is it going to be different? And when they couldn't answer it, or they would answer it with things, well, we just want to, we want to live normal lives and, and work nine to five. And I'm like, well, that's not going to sell. That's not going to get uh, many clients. <laughs> and so then I, I started working at Arnold in Boston, and I was in the new business group. I was heading that up as director of new business and agency innovation. And in a pitch, as I'm sure you know, you need ideas and you need them fast. Uh, mm-hmm. There are deadlines. You know, you got a meeting next Thursday, and you got to have ideas. And you might have a pitch team assembled, but you know, sometimes you just you need magic. You need to get a, a bundle of ideas very, very quickly. And so I started this thing called the Innovation Station at the time. It was a very early form of crowdsourcing that, that basically utilized the entire Arnold network worldwide to tap into when we needed ideas for a pitch. And it worked quite well. And I, I started thinking, man, what if I applied the same technology, not to sort of the unvetted masses with all due respect to Arnold people, but uh, to a very vetted group. And that's really where the concept of IdeaSicle was born. Interesting. So you would basically send out like a mass, a mass email to everybody at Arnold and then they would sort of come back with their ideas? Yeah. And we had a little incentive in there as well, because again, I was the head of innovation. So we had these innovation parties that were paid for by the ideas that people came up with. So we would pay them, you know, 25, 50 bucks if we used one of their ideas in a pitch, but then another 25 or 50 bucks would go into a kitty to pay for a innovation keg of beer <laughs> that we would have nice. uh, an innovation party in the cafeteria or something. And, and that sort of spread the word and got people uh, into it. And it was great for morale too, by the way, because more people could get involved into the fun part of a pitch uh, that might not normally have that access. Um, so then you sort of took that idea and that became the, the genesis of uh, IdeaSicle? Yes. And the agencies that I've worked at, um, you mentioned Wyden, that's one of them. Goodby, Silverstein and Partners out of San Fran is another. Um, Arnold, as I said, Mullen and a couple of others. I met these incredibly genius people along the way that were idea people first. They might be in the creative departments, they might be in account service, they could be in something else, but they were idea people. And so I handpicked my all-time favorite ones that I've ever worked with that were not only incredibly brilliant, but they were brilliant fast. You know, we all know mm-hmm. people that are, are brilliant in our business, but maybe in three weeks. Well, we didn't, I didn't want to build a model like that. I wanted something that was happening in real time where people were riffing with each other and, and building on each other's ideas almost in real time. So uh, I, I really screened for people that were brilliant fast. Wow. So are these people that are still have jobs elsewhere? Are they freelancers or? It's a mix. 
Um, uh, most of them are freelancers, but a few are still. And if you go to my website and you go to the experts tab, you'll see that a number of my experts are under pseudonyms because mm -hmm. they still work with an agency. And the agency business is funny. Uh, there's a blind spot in creative departments when it comes to freelance. Um, it's basically allowed. And the reason mm -hmm. for that is twofold. One, no creative department pays their people enough. So there's that. Right. So it's a way to make <laughs> up a little extra revenue. But the other is that they might come up with a brilliant idea for a barbershop or something that can then be entered in award shows under the banner of the agency's name. So it's not a crazy uh, thing to allow, although it seems counterintuitive to people outside of our business. And so I'm basically kind of drafting off of that blind spot where a lot of my people are, you know, saving for their kids' college education through Ideasicle. You know, nobody is mm -hmm. a full-time employee. They're all freelance, but they can make some good side money um, working with us on, on our ideation projects. That's cool. We let our employees do freelance work on the side as well. It's, yeah, I think that once you sort of get into that world and you realize that your skills are valuable in many different places, it's kind of hard to tell people they can only use them in one sense. You know? Yeah, it's sort of the hum humane way to treat creative people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, where, where are your experts located? Are they all over the place? They really are. There are some in North Carolina, some in New York, some in Boston, San Francisco, Chicago. They're, they're literally all over the country. And so, you know, which is interesting insofar as we don't need an agency. We don't need bricks and mortar. We don't need a place for them to show up. Um, it's entirely virtual. And, and because of that, I can put people together that never, ever would have worked together otherwise with, without this kind of a model. That's cool. So what, what kind of clients are you usually working with? It really ranges. Believe it or not, 35% of our business is with advertising agencies because, mm -hmm. you know, they're in a pitch, they're in a pinch, you know, they need ideas really, really fast. Sort of like when I did the innovation station at Arnold, it sometimes is just great to get some outside perspective and somebody to come up with 10, 12 great ideas in a couple of days that then can feed the pitch team to then develop or be inspired by and come up with their own ideas as a result. But uh, aside from agencies, we work with a lot of retailers. And I think the reason for that is uh, one thing I've not mentioned about Ideasicle is we don't execute our ideas. We only come up with them. Gotcha. And so as a result, the clients we tend to work with have in-house agencies that are ready and willing for this kind of outside perspective. And they, they don't want it all the time. We're, we're not built to be an agency of record. And I know we're going to talk more about that later. But we're not. We're, I don't want to be the agency of record, at least not right now. Um, we, we just work on a project basis. And I think clients find that refreshing because they can just, when, when they're in need, Give me a call. Within a week, we've got 10, 12 ideas they, they can use. We do another round after that. So the whole thing could be done within a couple of weeks. And retailers love that speed, but they're also well-equipped with in-house agencies to go execute. Um, how do you, when you're, when you're pitching Ideasicle, how do you describe it to a potential client? Um, well, I, I basically say there's, there's no other way to get access to this kind of talent and get a flurry of ideas this quickly than with Ideasicle. And the reason I'm, I'm that confident is, number one, I've seen the, the process work where if a client brings us a problem, there's no better way to solve 
a marketing problem than with a flurry of ideas. And I think, you know, leaning a little into the AOR discussion, I think agencies tend to get a little bit more precious about uh, the ideas they present. You know, they'll go in with three and there'll be mm -hmm. one that's a clear recommendation that they will be just short of shoving it down the client's throat. And I'll, <laughs> I'll do the exact opposite. I'll present 10 ideas in the first session and I won't try to sell any of them. So in, in, in that session, I'll learn something about what, the, what you can't get into a creative brief, which is what is the client like? And a lot of agencies sort of turn their nose at, at even that uh, point, you know, who cares what the client likes? Let's give them what they need. And I believe that to a certain extent. But if you show a client 10 ideas, you will walk away from that meeting knowing much uh, more clearly what kinds of ideas they like. And I think like is an important factor when it comes to evaluating ideas, because um, when you like something, there's untold data working in your mind and in your gut and in your experience that's telling you to like it. And I think that's all valid. And so it's not just whimsical, oh, I just like that, that's cute. It's more, mm -hmm. if a client likes an idea, there's a real reason behind that, even if they can't articulate it very well. Right. And so I guess that's a long-winded way. If that was an elevator pitch, it would be a, a, a very, very tall building. <laughs> No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, if you've been working at a company for 10 years, what you'd like is probably something that's going to be good for the company because you, you've you sort of taken on a certain amount of um, the brand essence probably in in your understanding of the world. Yeah, and ironically, the uh, seeing a flurry of ideas helps me as the ideator understand what's going to be a good idea and what isn't that we can take into the next round and be all the more dangerous. So is that usually how you sort of the first stage of working with a client is you just bring a whole bunch of ideas that sort of maybe aren't super flushed out, but they're there? Yeah. So it starts with a creative brief and we start with a, a single page brief. That's a rule. I will not use a brief that's even one line over a single page. And the reason for that is I believe that creative people who are, are uh, a professional creative people can get overwhelmed easily. And the last thing you want to do, it's sort of like the Superman's kryptonite. When you overwhelm a creative person, they clam up and that's the last thing you want. So a single page tight brief that just illustrates the problem to be solved, the people we're trying to influence, what do we want to say, you know, the basic things and, and some tonality on the brand and stuff like that. But, but that's it. Let's just equip them to be dangerous let's not overwhelm them with too much data. Um, mm -hmm. And then they, they're liberated to, to come up with all kinds of ideas inspired by that brief. Cool. So the brief is the first stage and then does that, so if, if the client decides on a particular idea, then do you sort of offer more expansive plans for, for execution? Yeah, uh, we can. And so that it, it's a very flexible model in that if in the first round we come up with an idea and to your point, None of the ideas are fleshed out at this point. I'd rather present more ideas that are sort of skin deep, um, that are deep enough where the client can evaluate them and, and, and can get their head around them, but not so deep that we've wasted all kinds of time on an idea that the client may not even want to go forward with. And so after that first round, we may have nailed it with one idea, depending on the assignment. And the client's like, this is awesome. Can you use the second round? to blow that out into all kinds of different components, um, you know, given certain parameters of timing and budget and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Or they might say, 
these three ideas are right out. We, we can't use these and here's why. These three are pretty cool, sort of like them. Um, maybe, maybe not exactly right for us, but these three, these are awesome. I wanna see more like that. And so we'll, we'll use that uh, kind of evaluation as our fodder and our feedback um, to inspire the next round of ideas. How does pricing work for something like this? Well, it's it basically a flat fee. So for one round of ideation, we charge fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars. For two rounds, we charge twenty. And the reason I price it like that is that I want to heavily incentivize two rounds because I believe so strongly that. Uh, after that first round, we are way more dangerous with that second round because, again, we know what the client likes. And we've uncovered some of the landmines that you just can't predict when you're writing a brief, no matter how good the brief is. Right. And so after that first round, uh, we, we get the feedback and we go to work on a, on a second round. And so that's why we price it that way. But sometimes, especially with, with smaller companies where we can be we can isolate all the variables and we will know that this particular idea is either going to succeed or fail. And we can tie the, the success to very specific metrics. I, I'm willing to make bets. I believe in this model so much that, that I would take half the fee, for example, and then bet the other half on a certain metric. And if we reach that metric, then we would, we would earn exponential you know, above what we would have normally charged. So I'm willing to make bets as well. So it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, it's not a, it is a fixed rate, but uh, unless we want to talk about it and come up with something interesting. Interesting. Um, what is, uh, what would you say one of the biggest challenges to your business and this business model is? Uh, easily the fact that it's a project-based model. So I can build loyalty with a particular client and I can try to stay top of mind with a newsletter that I do every month filled with my Forbes posts and articles on creativity and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, you're constantly beating the sales drum. I can't rely on a nice fat retainer um, that, that I can expect money coming in every day. So from that perspective, it's a real challenge. You have to be out there all the time and, and constantly planting seeds that may not even uh, you know, germinate for another year or sometimes two. You know, I, I, I might speak at a conference. Um, in fact, I did this once. I spoke at a conference the second year of IdeaSickle. And in the fourth year of IdeaSickle, I got a call from somebody that was at that conference. And they remembered <laughs> it, which, you know, I, I'll give them credit. That's pretty cool. Uh, but sometimes this kind of thing takes a while. And we're not right for everybody. Not, not everybody, you know, is willing to take the chance with this kind of a model, number one. It's not normal. I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been around for seven years, so it's becoming normal. But, you know, it's not for everybody. They're already paying agencies probably, and they feel like they should be getting this kind of work from them. But sometimes, I'll tell you, having some outside perspective, people that haven't been at the grind um, every single day for five years or three years even, is refreshing uh, because we, we automatically look at the problem in ways that I, I guarantee the client nor the agency has thought of because we just try to really blue sky each situation. Well, you there's something on your website. I'm not going to paraphrase it very well, but something about having people who um, are not tied to the work that are not considering how hard or how difficult the work will be coming up with the strategy and the ideas that is different than an agency that realizes that, you know, they're probably only going to come up with ideas that fall into their wheelhouse and probably don't over extenuate their business 
But if you detach strategy and ideas, then there really isn't a limit to what you can come up with in that regard. Yeah, and and this is this is one of the real issues with the time of staff model, which is effectively what almost every advertising agency bills. And and as a quick aside, what that is is you don't bill for ideas, you bill for the execution of the ideas. And so you have a time of staff model. You bill the hours to execute. And um, as a result of that, you tend, and most agencies are noble and will present ideas even if they can't execute them. But do you want to have that in the back of your mind as a client that they may not present an idea because they can't execute it? They won't make money on it. In fact, they'll lose money to somebody else if uh, they present this particular idea. So I didn't want to have that kind of a bias, sort of executional Mm -hmm. bias, if you will. Um, And so I'm leaving tons of money on the table. I'm leaving AOR potential on the table. I get all that. But I want it to be a pure play idea machine that I don't care if the idea is free to execute, if it solves a problem. And we have presented ideas to clients that are literally free, that would just cost the paper of a letter that they need to write and send to their subscribers, for example. But the idea mm-hmm. of that letter was really profound and powerful, and that was that was the, uh, the power of that idea, not some big, fat production budget. So let's talk a little bit about agencies of record. That's uh, actually how I came across you as I was um, doing some Google searching and saw your article. How would you define um, what an AOR agency of record? Well, the agency of record is the the agency that, that, that probably has the most work with a particular client and is also the holder of the brand idea. So they probably came up with the campaign theme. They probably came up with what I would call the brand idea uh, for, for that particular brand. And as a result, there's a lot of power in that because whoever comes up with it can probably manage it the best because there's no not invented here issue. Um, and whether or not they can actually execute everything that has to happen under that is not as important as it is that they are the ones that came up with the idea and love the idea the most, can articulate the idea, are the masters of that idea, and can help the client represent that idea inside and out. So I would, I would define that as the agency of record. Gotcha. I know in the, you know, the 30 or so agencies that I've interviewed um, on this podcast, I've seen a lot of success that comes from specialization, sort of the opposite of the AOR model. Um, But I've also had a couple of agencies that are pretty good at doing just about everything. Do you think specialization is necessary? I do think it's necessary, especially when it's an emerging, say, technology. You know, when, when, when it's emerging, you need to have somebody that knows how to do it, and the chances are the agency of record does not. And so if you're a client, um, you're very open to experimentation if you think it could yield some financial benefit by tapping into that expertise. But what tends to happen is these new technologies come in and they become not so hard to execute. You know, they're, they're, they, they get demystified quickly. I mean, even look at the the uh, production tools that you know I have right in front of me with iLife. I've got a Mac. Um, I can do some pretty heavy duty editing uh, with iMovie. I can do the it's sort of the democratization of production has happened in the marketplace, which is just one aspect of how the technology and the specialization of production has become demystified and perhaps more uh, readily available 
to the masses. And then you couple that with the expectations of basically real-time content. And I think consumers are, are less interested in, in supremely polished communications and more interested in how a brand ticks. You know, well, how does it think? How does it behave in the marketplace? I, I actually wrote an article about a concept called brand improv mm -hmm. that I think as social media has taken on greater importance in the uh, reflection of a brand, you know, a brand thinking and, and behaving in real time, you know, a tweet is happening right this second. You can't have lawyers and you can't have bureaucracy and meetings for a tweet. You know, you just can't. You have to have a really good brand idea, a brand idea that's so strong that people can channel that brand idea into the things that are going on. So back to your original question, as these new technologies emerge, you do need some kind of an, an expert to engage with that early on. But eventually these things just become easy for anybody to do, whether it's an, an agency of record or an, even an in-house agency. You know, um, while I was doing my Googling, I noticed there were a lot of articles on very prominent sites that talked about the death of the agency of record, the death of the AOR. If you Google it yourself, you'll see dozens of these articles. Um, I, I'm always skeptical anytime you hear someone declares the death of something. And, uh, and that partly is what sort of drew me to your article. W what would you say to the people that are sort of proclaiming that? Well, I, I don't think the agency of record is going to die anytime soon. And, you know, I, I want to talk about consultants in a second because I think they're, uh, I've been involved with Deloitte and an agency called Heat. And I want to talk about that in a second. But I think the current trajectory of the AOR is just evolving some. It's not necessary anymore for an agency of record to do everything. What is necessary for an agency of record, and I think Alex Bogusky was talking about this, and I think Pam Hamlin from Arnold was talking about this too, is that it's about brand stewardship. It's, and we talked about this already a little bit, but the agency of record, if they come up with the brand idea for a particular client, they are then the masters of that brand idea. And as a result, they and the client together can make decisions on behalf of the brand idea. You know, and when you've got that, that's a, a pretty powerful position. But what that undercuts is the necessity to be able to execute everything. Because if you think about it, any given brand doesn't have to do everything. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And, and, and that's not only because of what the brand is all about, which I find really fun. You know, if a brand is all about, you know, being very active, then what kinds of things would that brand do in the marketplace? That's a really fun exercise. But uh, just because you can do social media or you can do uh, Twitter, for example, doesn't mean you necessarily should. Is it going to solve a, the problem that you have, the marketing problem? And I think, you know, agencies of record can morph to be actually executing less and thinking on behalf of a client and representing that brand idea. That's just one way it could go. Yeah, one of the things I thought was funny that you mentioned in the article is you say, who do clients strangle when things go badly? <laughs> <laughs> and But it's true, you know, if you just hire, you know, one agency for social media, one agency for paid media, one agency for branding, one agency for this, one agency for that, like, you don't have 
there's nothing linking them all together. And, uh, you know, they're all fighting for your, your marketing budget at the same time. It's true. And, and I think, you know, the agency of record is going to have to get less precious about that very issue. You know, I, I think more and more agencies of record are, are more and more willing to work with other partners and basically, I mean, not be the boss, but to direct them, almost creative direct them or brand direct them in a way that relieves the client of that responsibility. Because I think a lot of the clients went to this best of breed model where they were going to manage it all. And it's really, really hard. I mean, if you've got four or five different agencies out there and you are the brand steward, that's really challenging because you've got all these different agencies. They all have their own P&Ls. They are all fighting for the, the money that you have. Instead, might that not be a wonderful role for your current agency of record and just say, look, I'm going to pay you this amount of money and I want you to find partners that can satisfy our communications plans at any given moment. You can pick who you want. I want to I want approval. I want to be able to approve them and I want to see them and meet them. But I want you to hire them. I want you to manage them and I want them to be subservient to you. And then you come to me as a team with your recommendations. I think that could be a very viable. In fact, I'm sure this is happening um, out, out there. I, I don't know of specific examples, but some version of that I was doing on the Tyson Chicken account at Arnold about 12 years ago. So I'm mm -hmm. sure by now the agencies of record have gotten into this kind of a rhythm of playing nice with others who have specialties that they don't have so that the brand can be all the stronger. That makes sense. Yeah, you quote um, Dana Anderson in the article, um, the CMO of Mondelez, who says, it's time to accept the agency of record model is no longer the pathway to Oz for clients and agencies, and that digital just didn't make one new channel, it created thousands of new mediums. So there you have, you know, we do have sort of an expansion of all the possibilities in um, what an agency can do, sort of just because of the, you know, innovations in technology. Well, and if you look at the history of an agency of record, the way that they've handled evolution is that they've hired it, you know? So a, a new technology or, or way of communicating emerges, they hire people, they build a practice, and then you know what? It might not even be viable in two years. The whole thing might be a fad and it goes away. And so now you've hired all these people and you've got to fire them or you've got to remobilize them to some other, you know, new technology of the day. So instead of that, I think because she's right, it, it, the proliferation is just unbelievable and how many new things are happening. But the one constant, the one thing that will never change is that a brand needs an idea. A brand needs to have an essence to it that is articulated and powerful and can then take many, many forms. It doesn't matter what the new thing is next month. We'll have something for it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to execute that. You can still come up with the idea for a Snapchat promotion without being a coder, without being somebody that uh, is, is heavily involved in the API. You can just come up with the ideas for that. And I think that kind of intellectual space is very likely where the AOR is going to go. But uh, if you don't mind, I think this would be a good place to uh, talk about the consultancy model. Mm -hmm. um, I've been working with uh, Deloitte, and they recently acquired an agency called Heat out of San Francisco, a, a really very creative hot shop. 
And Deloitte, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, is well known as kind of a tax accountant, a general sort of management consultant, um, but not so much as a creative consultant or a marketing consultant. And it turns out they, they actually do have wildly robust digital chops um, at, at Deloitte. And as a result of this meeting, you now have not only communications that, that these two can do, and I should say that this is a client of mine. That's the reason that uh, I know them so well is I actually mm-hmm. help them uh, position themselves in the marketplace under this idea of everything is branding. And so if you think about that, that's the opposite of what I'm talking about with, with respect to the AOR. Here we've got a creative agency and Deloitte, a, a digital global um, agency that can pretty literally do anything, excuse me, anything from a technological standpoint, all the way down to retail management software, uh, their their mobile apps, um, supply chain stuff, you know, things that you might not think of as a normal, quote, branding moment, but are absolutely branding moments if you think about it this way. You know, a retailer having retail management software that actually works, that is an expression ultimately in the marketplace of your brand. And so now this entity, this Heat plus Deloitte entity can uh, come up with a brand idea and then within the same uh, domain, execute it anywhere in any way. But they have the flexibility because Deloitte is so enormous that they can bring people in and put people out bring these people in, put them out, and it, as needed within uh, the, the, the entire organization. So that could be the future as well. And it's exactly the opposite of what we just talked about with the AOR, where the AOR is the intellectual leader of the brand idea and then managing multiple disciplines from you know presumably different companies to go in and execute. So who knows what's going to win or if it's going to be some kind of a combination, but uh, it's a very interesting time. That is very interesting. It actually reminds me of a client that we work with that does something similar with restaurants. You know, someone with a restaurant idea will come to them and sort of ask for funding. They'll give them the funding, but they'll also help them every to do everything until the restaurant's open, everything from choosing the POS system they use to um finding a branding agency like us to, um, you know, working on working with the interior designers and stuff like that. It is a really interesting model. And I hadn't even thought of it in terms of uh, agency. But yeah, you have those sort of those two sides, you know, you can either be the the person that comes up with the idea or you can do the, the execution. Yeah, and it's not just Deloitte either. I mean, IBM's getting into the marketing space. Accenture is getting into the marketing space. It's a new trend. It's like the new territory that these consultants are trying to uh, dominate because the CMO is taking on more and more responsibility in the C-suite. And as a result, these consultants want to make sure that they've got a seat there. So I think all of this makes sense, but ultimately it could it could really make sense for the brands as well, because now you literally do have an agency of record without the need of uh, all kinds of disparate agencies. You just have one extremely robust solution that can turn on different solutions at different times as needed. You mentioned another trend of big brands relying on in-house agencies. Why do you think this is? Well, there are a couple. I mean, the big driving reason is cost. Um, when you can do things internally, it just costs less than than uh, paying people on the outside. But I think the other is, you know, frankly, this whole trend started because agencies of record didn't want to do 
a lot of the stuff, a lot of the below the line work. Like if you're a retailer, all the POP and the circulars and, and all that kind of stuff is, is sort of frowned upon by creative agencies, um, or at least it was. And as a result, it became so frustrating to get them to do it, even though there was you know a fair amount of money in it if you could figure it out. Uh, it got so frustrating that that retailers said, well, heck with it. I'm just going to start an in-house agency, and we're just going to do the stuff that the agency doesn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they started to build really robust departments that were that could do really you know sophisticated things with and started attracting um, uh, real talent from regular old agencies because they could pay them a little bit more. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, a place for creative people to go and be on the client side, have a completely different experience. And I think there's something to that, too, from a branding standpoint, that if, if you can figure it out, if you think about it, the people that work at a company, even in an in-house agency, just in a purest sense, are ideally suited to represent the brand because they're there. They're in it. They live it every day. So might not that be a, yet a third uh, future of, of agency business, and that is even more robust in-house agencies where that AOR that we've been describing is perhaps uh, happening within their own walls. And then they can bring various experts in as needed for, for, for various execution. Now, the problem with that, and I'm sure you're just about to ask this, is that, <laughs> but wouldn't that mean they, they're getting too close to their business? And I think that is an inherent flaw. And so I think these, these companies need to build in a mechanism of bringing in outside perspective somehow. And currently, it's the agency of record. That's that's an obvious one because they're they're on the outside. They're they're very engrossed in the, in the brand, but they can bring some outside perspective. They work on other clients. They see things. And when when you have an in-house agency, it can get very insular, uh, very quickly. I've seen it with some of the clients that we work for who hire us, frankly, Ideasicle, to provide them that outside perspective. And in fact, we worked with Vistaprint. I guess about a year and a half ago, where the whole goal was to do an ideasical project to inspire their creative people. So it was a way to jumpstart their creative process by bringing in outside perspective on purpose. So some of the ideas we presented were fine and they could go and execute, but some of them actually inspired ideas in them. And that was the whole point, is to get them mm-hmm. thinking differently about the same old problem because it does, uh, it, it can get sort of insular uh, with an in-house agency. Well, you know, it's really interesting. You've got me thinking because since it seems like, you know, the agency of record is so important to the brand idea that, you know, certain kinds of agencies are going to be more more likely to fill the role of agency of record than others. You know, like our agency, for example, started as a design and branding agency. You know, now we offer web stuff. We don't offer marketing. Now, I would say that our agency, since we do focus so much on branding, and that we would be more likely to fill that role of an agency of record with a company, whereas somebody who started off just offering social media or just offering pay-per-click services might have a little bit of a harder time sort of becoming more of an agency of record because they've already sort of established themselves as that auxiliary component to the to the brand. Yeah, I think there's truth to that. Um, 
I mean, it, it comes down to evaluating the brand idea in the first place and who's best equipped to do that. Because you may not have to do everything. You may not have to execute everything. But you do need to evaluate the brand idea with the filter of, does this idea have legs? Is this going to be able to manifest in all kinds of different ways and even ways that, that we can't even dream of today? Or is it limited somehow by a particular medium? Does it need to be told visually? Does it need to be told in video and only video, for example? Um, or does it, is it a big enough idea that it can, uh, it can live anywhere? And I think that that is a skill. You know, that is a skill set. Uh, it's a skill set to come up with a brand idea, but it's also a skill set to know when you've got one that uh, transcends all media. That's cool. You know, I suppose one of the other factors that's really changing the landscape for agencies is remote work, um, you know, remote collaboration tools and websites like Upwork that make hiring freelance talent anywhere in the world really easy. Do you think this will affect the AOR model? Uh, of course. I mean, it, it'll affect everything, um, mm -hmm. a, including the AOR model. But I think what, what, what those kind of tools do is that they allow the AOR to, again, be focused more on the intellectual property of the brand idea and less on the mechanics of making it happen. And I mean, you could see maybe, and, and maybe I'm dreaming, but you could maybe see the AOR financial model completely shift from time of staff, because they won't have as much staff, to more of a Hollywood model someday, where the agency owns the intellectual property, not the client. And the agency pays for the production, not the client. But the way the agency is paid is based on value. And so you look at your baseline sales, and maybe it's tied entirely to sales. And maybe the client has no say in wh what creative gets approved even. Maybe the AOR becomes purely, from a Hollywood standpoint, they either make it or they break it based on their ideas. And with that kind of pressure, I think it would change how they come up with ideas. I think they would be thinking much more about ROI and less about awards. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if you look at their portfolio of clients, yes, you may have a couple of losers, but if you think of it as a mutual fund and you believe in your agency, you're going to have far more winners than you are losers. And the winners, if you negotiate the deals right, are going to be exponential. And the, the IP that you'll own, and that would include the logo design, the tagline, maybe, uh, the, all the campaign assets, you know, all that stuff becomes super valuable. And the client is not going to want to fire that agency either because they're going to have to start all over. And so it could be in the agency's interest to kind of flip this. But that's easy for me to say. It is very, I think it's very difficult to, to get there and to be the first agency to try something like that. But um, I think that could be where ultimately it goes. Wow, that's fascinating. Have you ever encountered anyone who's done anything close to that? No. Um, I, I think for me, Ideasicle is a baby step because mm -hmm. what we're doing is asking clients to at least pay for the idea. Like right now, like I said before, they really don't pay agencies for ideas. They pay agencies to execute ideas. And so when they're in a creative presentation, the, the client is, they're sitting back thinking, I'm paying, you know, $100,000 a month retainer to you guys. You just presented three ideas, and I think one of them is great. 
but you know what? I got to make sure I get my money's worth on this retainer. So why don't you guys go back and come up with another campaign idea or another th three campaign ideas. And two weeks later, after tons of work, they do that. And the client ends up buying the, the one from the first round. And so that kind of dynamic is very wasteful for an agency. The agency wants to nail it the first time. So they don't spend too many resources on the idea. They can, they can start billing for the execution. And I think with IdeaSickle, at least, we don't do any execution. And so when the client hires us, they're leaning in when we're presenting the ideas because they're paying for the ideas. It's a very different dynamic and, and fascinating to me. So when they're looking at the 10 ideas we present in that first round, they're looking to buy. They're looking for potential. They're looking like, oh my gosh, we could use this um, next year with that, that sales thing that we're doing. Or we could use this idea for our blog. We could use this idea for the... So they're, they're looking to buy as opposed to looking to get their money's worth by sending us back to do more and more rounds. Like it's a flat fee. So I haven't solved it for the industry by any stretch, but mm -hmm. I'm taking a baby step by at least getting the client to think about the idea as valuable. That's really cool. Yeah, that's def it's definitely got me thinking more about the sort of ideation and strategy aspects of, of the work that agencies do. So your article is that we've been talking about is called the advertising agency of record model isn't dead. It's just being reinvented. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. And also you mentioned another article. It was, um, um, oh, brand improv brand improv. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I'll get a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, so I always ask my guests for three takeaways, a few bits of advice for, for growing agencies who are trying to position themselves in a highly competitive market. Yeah. So I'm going to put, I do a lot of consulting with agencies from a new business standpoint, because I learned so much when I was at Arnold as a new business guy, I do this kind of on the side because I love the hunt and I love uh, helping agencies. And the one thing that, um, that I found the most is that agencies <laughs> tend to be pretty bad at, at marketing themselves. And it's because they, they do exactly what we tell clients not to do. They try to be all things to all people. And that's the enemy of profound meaningfulness, you know? And so what I tell uh, agencies is, if you're gonna stand for something, it better not be results, and it better not be creativity, because everybody does that. And everybody says, we get better results. Some even combine them and say, great creative that brings great results. But the problem with that is everybody says that. And number two, the client is like, well, I'll be the judge of your creativity and you better bring us results or why are you in business? So you can't really hang your hat on those two things. So what I recommend to agencies is find an obsession. Find something about what you do or how you think or how you uh, go about your business that you think is really, really important. And then make it overtly really, really important in everything you do. Because in the, the fact is, most agencies are organized the same way. There's account service, there might be a media department, there's a brand planner, there are creatives and traffic and blah, 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 blah. You're not gonna differentiate yourself uh, with all that stuff. But you can be obsessed with something that galvanizes all the things that you do, that rationalizes why you're organized the way you're organized and gives you a prism through which to talk about the same old crap in, in all the different RFPs that everybody else has to talk about, but you can talk about it in a fresh new way. 
So that's number one. Have an obsession and figure that out. Um, and I'll send you a <laughs> link to a, a blog post I wrote a while back about this concept that, that gives it much better detail and probably much better said than I just did. So that's number one. Excellent. Excellent. The second one is when you're doing an RFP, and let's face it, we all hate doing RFPs. They're a pain. But um, the, the theme here is lose early because it's cheaper. And the reason I say that is be yourself in your RFP. Don't try to calculate what the client wants to such a degree that you're not yourself anymore. Because getting into a, a pitch, being accepted through the RFP phase and not being yourself, the client's going to find out eventually that you're, you're, you're lying effectively. You're calculating. You're, yeah. you're, tr you're trying so hard to position yourself to be the right kind of agency and I just did air quotes, that you are, you're, you're <laughs> actually setting yourself up for failure. So instead, if you have a very clear obsession and it's really meaningful and interesting, then have the RFP reek of that obsession from beginning to end. And if you don't have certain capabilities, be honest about that. Clients love knowing that you're honest about what you can and can't do. And in fact, when you, when you say you can't do X, it does mean, it, it means that you really can do Y when you say that you can do that. If you say that you can do everything under the sun, the client rolls their eyes and, and thinks you're bullshitting them. And so there's no point in that. Lose early and get rejected for being who you are earlier uh, because then you don't go through the expense of a, of a pitch, have the client find out that you're lying, and then you're out anyway. So that's number two. And then the last thing, and this is more for smaller agencies, but I, I made this mistake. Don't get too dependent on one client. Um, in the early days of IdeaCycle, I had one big, fat, awesome client. It was AMD, the chip maker in Austin, Texas. They hired us mm -hmm. all the time to do all kinds of ideas to bring to their clients to pitch ideas and, uh, and their OEMs and stuff like that. It was great. And as a result of all that, I was not doing appropriate marketing for IdeaCycle to other clients. And one day, the main client got let go. And all of a sudden, all of our business vanished. And I, had no, I hadn't been planting seeds. I hadn't been doing any good marketing. And I was left scrambling to try to build the business back up effectively from scratch. So from the get-go, don't get addicted to one client as intoxicating as it may be. Make sure you're <laughs> always, even, uh, even if you, you've got more work that you can possibly handle, you have to constantly be planting seeds for uh, what could be the day that you lose that client. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Will Burns, for um, talking with us. I know our audience will enjoy it as much as I did. I'll put links in the show notes to your articles. And uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. You've been listening to the Creative Agency Podcast with your host, Chris Bolton. When he's not podcasting or being a dad, he's the Digital Strategy Director at Murmur Creative in Portland, Oregon. Be sure to visit us online at creativeagencypodcast.com.